0: الحمد لله رب العالمين والسلام على سيدنا ونبينا وحبيب قلوبنا وشفيع نفوسنا ابي القاسم وعلى الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم صل محمد محمد وعجل فرجهم الله عليك الله we were discussing the events that took place, things that took place uh, in the 50 years uh, that led to Ashura taking place. It's not that something like Ashura happens overnight, and there are just a bunch of evil people who get together and and create such a tragedy, but rather there are there's a lot more to it. We were trying to look at history from a Shi'i perspective and see what things kind of went wrong, what mistakes were made that. Risala uh, Risalah started with the Holy Prophet وآله, and his prophethood and after him continued but then ended up and Islam ended up in the hands of uh, people of the Bani Umayyah who were a problem, the Prophet had said they're a problem, Amir al salam had said they're a problem and so on. We're trying to figure out these different events, What, what was placed first, which event happened first, then what, was ha- what happened second, like, uh, like stones that you will place on each other to make a building. Uh, the same way things came together, events took place that led to Ashura happening. This has been the topic. The problem was that Bani Umayyah took power. We want to see how is it that a Yazid bin Muawiyah is going to be in power, which allows him to do whatever he wants to do and Ashura taking place. The first couple um, of events that we talked about were the first Khalifa coming to power, of course, and that being an example of power not going into the hands of the one it's supposed to end up in. The second Khalifa, the way he was chosen as well, we spoke about the feltah and how it happened. If the first Khalifa was chosen, all of a sudden, it should not have happened again with the second Khalifa without consulting the Muslim Ummah or at least the major Sahaba of the Holy Prophet. Both the fact that Imam Ali didn't become Khalifa for the second time is a problem and how this took place is also a problem. There we have uh, The Shi'i school has criticism in that regard of how it took place. Now, having said all of this, I want to, before I move on into our next event, or the next uh, contributing factor in these fifty years to Ashura taking place, to power ending up in the hands of Bani Umayyah, ultimate total power ending up in their hands. Uh, before you know moving on, I just want to explain something I said yesterday as well. Um, I mentioned At-Tabari and maybe the tabaqat At-Tabaqat some say Al-Kubra, some say Al-Kabir. Um, I mentioned those uh, sources and I refer to them as primary sources. I want to, I want to explain this because after that I was thinking about it a little bit and I felt like in the, there's a little bit of explanation that might, might be needed and that is that um, when, when we say primary sources, sometimes you say primary sources of Ahl Sunnah sometimes you say primary sources of the Shia and sometimes you say primary sources of history what I mean by primary sources when I refer to Tabari, for example, as a primary source is not that this is a primary source of, of the Sunni school or the Shi'i school. What is meant is that it is one of those first history books and books of Sirah um, that have been written, that go back all the way to the third century. When, uh, when studying history, one of the main elements of a book, of a work, being considered a primary work is how old it is. One of those things that factors in. Uh, And it's one of the main ones as well, Uh, is the fact that it is one of those older ancient books. Um, And so that's what is meant by al-Tabari being a primary source. Or else, as I said yesterday as well, and I might keep saying this in our series, is that uh, when it comes to uh, proving something to the Shia, proving something to the Ahl-Sunnah, You can't just say, oh look, Al-Tabari said this, so then you have to go by it now. No. Everyone will have their criteria for accepting or declining and rejecting a report that's found in Tabari, especially since uh, Al-Tabari himself, in the beginning of his work, of his history work, he says that you might find some things in this book that you'll disagree with, but I want you to know that I've just related what has come to me the way it has come to me. In other words, kind of like I've compiled everything that reached me. So it's up to the scholars to and the historians to refine these uh, reports and accounts that I have in this book. So this is what I meant by primary source. All right, let's go on, let's move to our topic today uh, in this session, in this lecture. And that is that it's the third, I would say, element, it's that third stepping stone on which the Beni Umayyah stepped on to gain their power. It's once again, it's a matter of luck. It wasn't their skill, and it wasn't something that they had actively and de- deliberately planned. But it happened in their favor as well. During the time of the second Khalifa. So so far, we have Saqifa taking place. That was all luck for Banu Umayyah. They didn't plan anything about that. Um, but they were standing aside watching, and oh, this has happened, you know. This is the first Khalifa was chosen. The second Khalifa, him, the way he was chosen as well and appointed by the first Khalifa, that wasn't something that uh, you'll find really much about in regards to the Bani Umayyah having anything to do with that. The most you'll find is that Uthman uh, was one of the ones that was one of the two that is proven that was consulted uh, by the first Khalifa. Um, That's about it, really. He was consulted on who the second Khalifa should be and he had the answer of his inside is better than his outside. That's all. So it doesn't seem like there was any deliberation there as well by the Banu Umayyah and let's say in more, more particularly Banu Sufyan of Banu Umayyah. This third one as well isn't going to be something that Banu Umayyah had much to do with. Um, it goes like this brothers and sisters that uh, well first I'm going to have to go through an introduction and then we'll get to the point itself, okay? The intro goes like this, it's going to be a pretty long introduction actually that the second khalifa, when he was in power and ruling what he's doing is that they say he wouldn't let the sahaba go out of Medina too much he wouldn't let them fight in battles too much Um, some of these great sahaba, they were just stuck in Medina what is the reason for this? Rasul Jafarian, one of the Shi'i contemporary historians, I mentioned his na- name yesterday as well, and lots of the stuff that I'll talk about, talk about today is based on what he's saying. Um, and of course, he relies on his sources. He gives a whole list of names of the different governors that the second Khalifa had appointed uh, to different regions of the Muslim Empire. Okay? And of course, the Muslim Empire was expanding and expanded maybe the most during the time of Umar ibn al-Khattab, the second Khalifa. When we look at the governors of these different regions, you won't find too many of those big names. And so, that, you know, there's a question mark there. You'll find some names like Sa'd bin Waqas, Abi Waqqas, Ammar bin Yasir, Ma'ad bin Jabal, Abu Ubaida al Jarrah. Okay, these are big names, of course. And these were some who were in charge of different places. For example, uh, if I'm not mistaken, yes, Sa'd bin Abi Waqas, and then Amar bin Yasir or vice versa. These two were sent to Kufa, for example, as governors of Kufa in a, in, in a certain time. Um, so you'll have a few names, but it's not like the second khalifa, he's told all of the grand sahaba to leave Medina and go out to different regions to rule and to be governors. But instead you will find something. You'll find that the mu'allafatul him or the tulaqa' were given uh, certain responsibilities. And we'll get to that later. So now, when they ask the second khalifa, when they ask him why this is the case, in al-tabaqat, it'll say that the second khalifa said, and أَنْ bil-amal." When he was asked, why is it that you are not sending the Grand Sahaba to do this kind of work, he said look i don't want to taint them with this kind of work politics is dirty let's say yes and i don't want them to be tainted by this kind of work that's the answer that's given okay please remember that this is all introductory brothers and sisters now that is what we have in one of these reports but jafarian he says that it's more there's more to it than that and of course he might have his reasons for this he says that, number one, there was this fear that if these Grand Sahaba go out to other parts of the Muslim Empire and stay there for a while, they might become the center of attention where they are. And maybe even cause issues for the Khilafah. Yes? Because look, who are we kidding? Brothers and sisters, when you have a main, when you have a president, for example, right, and the president is in charge of an entire country, Let's talk about the US, for example. All right, so you have the president, and he's the one in charge um, of the federal government, and he's the one calling all these shots. But at the end of the day, who has more power, the president or the one who is gover- the governor of a certain state in the US, for example? Yes, of course, lots of the funds, lots of the power is in the hands of the president, but you cannot neglect the power of the governors and as a matter of fact in this pandemic it became pretty clear yes when it came to opening up the economy opening up schools and all of that they're discussing all these things yeah it became clear that these governors should not be underestimated each can do whatever they wish and will so when you are in a certain region in a certain place you can have a lot of power there even if there's a higher authority yes because you have less to worry about. True, your jurisdiction is smaller. Uh, yet you have that, But that means that you have to deal with less and you can really invest in less versus the one who has the authority over all of the lands. His job is going to be harder. And so you might be able to cause problems for that higher authority. Now here, he says that uh, one of those reasons is that yes, we do, they, he didn't want... Problems to arise And this isn't necessarily something bad It makes sense actually Yes, each of these sahaba I mean, they saw in Saqifah What happened, right? In Saqifah there was there was a chance That others were going to take over A person like Saad bin Ubada. We didn't talk about him In um, our, our second lecture When we were talking about What happened in Saqifah But that itself is something to speak about uh, Saad bin Ubada was that close To getting the khilafah and not, and it and the Khilafah not ending up in the hands of Quraysh So The second Khalifa is aware of this And so he says, listen No one's going out, everyone stay here I don't want you to be tainted by this kind of work I don't want other problems to be caused Okay And this is why some, brothers and sisters This is why some will say that The second Khalifa Was really good at what he was doing He was able to get in the way of Fitnas. Didn't allow fitna to take place during, the time, during his time of rule, which uh, extends for 10 years. Uh, you won't find uprisings against him. You won't find riots and rioters, so to, so to speak, against them. Against him, excuse me. You don't find any of that stuff. Revolutions taking place, bloodshed, civil strife and civil war and battles. You don't find that during the second Khalifa's time. The third Khalifa... Eventually, was assassinated. There will be different reasons why. We'll get to that later. Um, and what some say of the Shi'i school and some of the Sunni school say in that regard. Like, for example, they'll say, some, some will say it was because the third Khalifa was very nice. And no matter how much Ali ibn Abi Talib, Sa'ad bin Waqqas, others, they asked him to give them permission to fight back at the rioters who were trying to assassinate Uthman. He said he didn't give them permission, and that's what eventually led to his blood being shed. So it was, he was so nice and so good that this happened. The Shi'i school will have its own explanation. But, but the point I'm trying to make is this. And they'll also say that the fourth Khalifa, uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib, also three major battles took place in his time. But none of this happened in the time, during the time of the second Khalifa. So it's because of these measures that he took, being careful that no one becomes too big, too famous, and uh, keeping people close and at arm's length, he was able to not allow any fitnas to take place during his time. That's the first reason uh, that our historians give us about why uh, these grand sahaba were not allowed to really go out there. And number two is that so they won't spread the hadiths of the Holy Prophet وآله, if we get a chance, inshallah, We'll get. We'll talk about this as well, and the how how it worked in that time period after the Holy Prophet all the way till the Umayyad ruler Umar Ibn Abdul Aziz, and this whole idea of the prohibition of the transcription um, of uh, prophetic hadiths, um, and what what role that played uh, in certain matters. Inshallah, if we if if I get the chance, we'll get to that as well because that is one of those. Um, also elements that factored into Bani Umayyah being able to get as big as they got but that's for uh, inshallah another time so that they won't spread the hadith of the holy prophet Yeah, one story for example goes like this that uh, the second khalifa uh, was sending off someone once again he's not a very famous sahabi Um, he was sending him off somewhere to be governor and uh, I forget his name I think his name was Garadha bin Ka'ab or something like that if, I, if I'm um, pronouncing it correctly. So this individual, when he's leaving uh, Medina to go and be governor of one of these regions of the Muslim empire, Amr ibn al-Khattab also sees him off, You know, uh, accompanies him uh, to the outskirts of the city. But then he tells him something. He says, look, there's a reason why I you know, accompanied you till here. I want to let you know that you're going to a land where people recite Quran and the humming sound, the sound of the recitation of Quran is like the humming of the bees. Nahl. Yes? If these people are so uh, engaged with the Quran, I just wanted to tell you that you don't need to make them busy with hadiths by the Holy Prophet. And here also, the Shi'i school, the Sunni school, will have their explanations and reasons why uh, the second Khalifa was not interested in the hadiths of the Holy Prophet being mentioned too much. Uh, That also is something to discuss some other time. But for now, that's what matters is, is, these are two of the reasons that some of our historians, they present as why the second Khalifa wasn't really too keen on grand sahaba going out um, and and, and having positions outside of Medina in different parts of the Muslim empire. Okay, so if this is the case and he's not going to be sending grand sahaba then who is he going to be sending? Here we, we have a story again that kind of, something that is said in the story, sheds light on what the criteria was uh, for him to send a people out to different regions as governors. It says that uh, he had appointed many governors for Kufa. Okay? The second Khalifa had tried so hard to take care of Kufa in the sense of having a governor there. He sends Ammar bin Yasir there, it doesn't work out. They say, oh, he's too weak, he's too soft, uh, according to the report that, you know, that, we, that I have. He sends uh, Sa'ad bin Waqqas, people are upset about him as well. And others he might have sent, maybe at least one more. But Then he comes to Mughira bin Shu'bah and he discusses with Mughira and consults him on this. He says, what, what am I supposed to do? Every, every person I sent to Kufa as governor, the people are not interested. So what am I supposed to do? And Mughira says, you know what? Why don't I become the uh, the governor of Kufa? Now here, there's an interesting back and forth that takes place uh, between these two. Omar um, Al Khattab tells him, you're a fasiq though. You're a, like an open sinner. You, you you commit sins. And Mughira was known for certain things. Mughira says, look, don't worry. I have competence in you know, running a... a um, city, I'm a good manager that kind of thing, and I have sins as well, what will remain for you is my competence and what will remain for myself are my sins in other words, don't work, the sin part has nothing to do with the governance part to be a governor is one thing and to sin is another thing, these two don't really, are not at odds with each other and they don't clash, they don't cause problems and so apparently this was enough for the second khalifa, he says, okay, you can go then, and he, put, and he puts them there, puts him there as well, although that, even for Mughira, apparently it didn't work out, and later on he had to change him as well. The fact that Mughira goes, shows that what, what matters is that you have competence, you can manage things. Once again, that's something uh, to think about. Is there a problem in that or not, Do we, when we want to, as, khalifa, as the khalifa of Rasulullah, is there only competence that's necessary, or do we, wanna, do we want leaders who are, also, who are in addition to being competent, they have taqwa as well. Maybe there weren't enough people who had competence, we don't know. Whatever the case may be, right now I don't want to say, speak for or against the decision. The point, we're trying to get to something else here now. This is what matters so far apparently, based on this story. And there are other things that have been said as well that imply that okay, what mattered Was competence, was that managerial, um, uh, uh, the managerial, um, what's the word for it here? (laughs) To be a good manager, that's what uh, mattered in the eyes of the second Khalifa, the managerial skills of the individual. And so when he was asked why he's utilizing fasiq individuals in another report, he says, Look, I'm not utilizing their FISK. I'm utilizing their competence uh, and their strength as governor. That's what's going on. I want to make sure things go right. Okay, so that's what it is. All right, so now, having said all of this, that's on one hand. The people that he would not allow to be in charge. And the people that he might have utilized on one's hand. But on the other hand, he knows... That these people, some of them might be problematic and so on. And so this is an interesting point as well. That the second Khalifa was super strict when it came to uh, his governors regarding how they deal with their people. And how they deal with the wealth of the public treasury and Baytul Mal. This was also very important to him. And he's very strict on this. So I want to share a few things with you in this regard, just to illustrate. And we're still in our introductory uh, part of the lecture. Uh, the main point we want to get to is something else. This is still part of the introduction. Uh, maybe you can say the second point in the introduction. The first point had to do with the Sahaba not being uh, appointed as, you know, given you know, high positions, and others having these positions, mostly. And the second point is this. Him, how strict he was on the governors that he was sending out when it came to how they dealt with their people, one, and two, how they were with the public treasury, the money. And so it says he would record their wealth when they would get sent to the region they were in charge of. So he's sending somebody off. And as they're going, leaving, he makes note and takes note of how much wealth they have. Right? And when they'd return, he'd split their wealth in two. He says, okay, how much do you have now? Splits it in two, and he would take half of it and put it in the in the baytul Mal and give them only half of the wealth that they had uh, and this was called something called uh... musha'ataratul mal it was called yes. uh... which means basically means muqasamatul Mal to cut it in half this was what he would implement with all of his all of the people that he would send out it's interesting the names that i read um, regarding the, the people that he would actually do this to it wasn't just normal names either. and we'll, we'll, I'll give you one example inshallah. And that is, uh, in other words, before I get to that story, the, what he's doing is for him, the default is that if you are going to be in power, that power will probably at least benefit you when it comes to your wealth. And I'm not going to let that happen. So he would take half of the wealth and put it in the treasury. But there are stories here and there are interesting reports here of how it was done. What kind of conversations would take place between him and them and how, like sometimes they would get upset, lots of times they would get upset. There were times that they would do uh, istighfar, they would say like Allahumma li amir al Oh Allah forgive him because like, he took my wealth and stuff like that. So that's there, once again, irrelevant whether this is the right thing to do the wrong thing to do. Right now we're after something else brothers and sisters. We're still in our introduction. We're after something else. These are just points that we're building on. The story goes like this, and this is in At-Tabaqat of Ibn Sa'ad. would um, The entry number is 520 for Abu Huraira, and so it goes like this: that Umar ibn al-Khattab said to abi "He said to Abu Huraira, 'Kifah wajatta al-imara, ya Aba Huraira.' So Abu Abu Huraira was in charge of Bahrain, and he, apparently the second caliph had sent him there." And so he says, How do you, how, how this rulership and governance, how do you, how do you see it? Oh, Abu Hurairah, how was it when Abu Hurairah has come back to the second Khalifa in Medina? Wa 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 qad Look, when you were sending me, I didn't want to go. Um, but then when you brought me back, <laughs> um, you brought me back while I was, you know, I was liking it, it wasn't too bad. Wa atahu when Abu Huraira had come back, uh, apparently the second khalif had told him to bring back with him wealth of the public treasury. And so he had brought back with him 400,000. Um, now here it doesn't specify dirhams or dinars. It doesn't specify. 400,000. All right. So these 400,000 that he had brought back, it says, فَقَالْ أَذَلَمْتَ أَحَدًا the second khalifa asks did you uh, do dhulm to anybody in attaining this wealth uh, and bringing this wealth to me? No, I didn't. Uh, meaning did you oppress anyone? Did you trample anyone's rights? No. shay'an <laughs> bi Did you take anything without it rightfully being yours? No, I didn't. Okay.. nafsik. <laughs> so how much of this 400,000 did you bring for yourself? That's the question that he asks him. قال twenty thousand of these forty four hundred thousand is for me personally. قال أسبتها Where'd you get it from? And so he says at Tajir. I was you know doing trade and and that kind of stuff. Now in other reports it says that he said that you know my livestock, my uh, my horses, they uh, they had. Uh, They multiplied in number, and that's what it is, and other things as well. He said, Okay, look at how much your capital was, how much money did you take with you, how much you come back with, and what the profits are. I need you to separate and put one in the Baytul Mal and the other in, and you can keep for yourself. So he took a good chunk of that wealth from him. This shows how strict he was when it came to these matters and there, as I said there are other stories as well we can't get into uh, of how some of these conversations would go between the second khalifa and some of these individuals that were sent as governors yeah they weren't always happy that the wealth was being taken from them and also so that's an example of how he would deal with uh, those under him and his, uh, those who were working under him regarding the wealth also regarding how they would how they would live their lives Yes. It says that he would sometimes just pop up in someone's home and go in. Someone would knock somebody's door and uh, the second khalifa was there but he wouldn't let them know that he's there. When they would open the door for that individual, that individual would go in and Umar ibn al-Khattab would also go in with them to see what's going on. Put them on the spot. Are you living a lavish life? What's going on in your life? Yeah? If you are overdoing things, you're in trouble. Alright, so he's keeping an eye. He's keeping an eye on how these people are living. And there are many other accounts as well. Finally I'm gonna read this uh, this part of the letter of his that he had sent to some of the people and he says look when I send my governors to you O people, when I send them to you, I'm not sending them to you to strike your your skin to beat you or anything God forbid and I'm not sending them to take your wealth from you I'm sending them I want you to learn the deen the sunnah Yeah. and if anyone does anything other than that I'm going to do qisas and retaliate from that governor whoever he is because I've seen the prophet do qisas on himself for some people that might have been hurt and so if that's the prophet then no one else is exempt from this rule we all have to be careful okay so having said all of that now we are done with that introductory portion of the talk now we need to talk about some other things and the main issue the third problem that arises now is this is that one of those who was a governor during the time of the second khalifa yes, all of this strictness that he had for many of the others that were under him he didn't exhibit that strictness when it came to this individual who is that individual? None, it's none other than Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan this raises a lot of question marks and red flags for us as the Shia school what happens is that when we look we see okay he was doing this all out of fear of God, probably. He was doing this because he wanted to make sure no fitnas happen. He was doing all of that, exhibiting all of that strictness for these purposes, right? But then we find that there is this exception, and a couple more exceptions as well. For example, they say when it came to Zaid bin Thabit, um, he didn't uh, take half his wealth. Yeah, even though he was doing that with a lot of others, he didn't do that to Zaid. One of those other exceptions is Mu'awiyah bin Abi Sufyan. Mu'awiyah bin Abi Sufyan was never uh, approached by the second khalifa in this fashion. Now, there are a lot of stories I want to share with you, at least three or four. We'll get to that. But first question is this. Well, how did even Mu'awiyah, who is one of the tulaqa one of the Al-Mu'allafatu Qulubihim, how is it that he even comes to power to begin with? And where was he in power? Well, the story goes like this, brothers and sisters. That it goes back to, you know, towards the end of Abu Bakr's time, but most of it is during the time of Umar ibn al Khattab. That during Umar's time, the Muslims eventually were able to conquer Philistine. And the second Khalifa, he has to personally go to sign some treaties with the people of that land. They conquered it, but, you know, it's a long story that I don't want to get into. Um, What the people of Bayt al-Maqdis, they said um, and what their conditions were to give up their land or to give up uh, and let the the Muslims take over. And so one of them, one of the conditions they had was that the Khalifa himself has to come. And so the second Khalifa consulted others in Medina and um, eventually came to the conclusion that he's going to come in person. He comes in person and the treaties are signed and all of that and he goes back. He goes back. Now he had left there were some big names now in that area, in that area, um, greater Damascus or greater Sham, let's call it. You had, had people like Abu Ubaida al-Jarrah, for example. You had Sa'ad bin Ma'ad, you had Yazid bin Abi Sufyan and others. These are people that are there. Now shortly after uh, the second Khalifa returns from Sham, from that area, an epidemic plagues those lands and a lot of Muslims die, a lot of people die, especially the governors those big names that I just mentioned plus more they, they pass away because of this illness and one takes the place of the other until um, the last one, or one of the last ones, Yazid bin Abi Sufyan the brother of Muawiyah yes, he also dies okay, him Yazid bin Abi Sufyan, his brother Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan, they had been sent in, in these crusades, let's call it or whatever, to conquer those lands. And so there's no one left anymore. Everyone dies. The one who now is now in charge is Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan. And he's put there by who? He's given the authority by the second Khalifa. I mean, there's nobody else left apparently. And so, but, but the thing is that now some people raise this question, why didn't he... Send somebody from Medina, one of these big names at least. Because greater Sham and greater Damascus of then, this area was a very strategic place. And we'll get to some of the questions that some writers have asked in this regard. Why was this the case? But anyway, this is how Muawiyah ended up being the governor of Sham. And they say for the last four years of the second Khalifa's life, He is in charge of all of those lands of Greater Shah. So let us remember, let's not mix these two up. Yazid bin Abi Sufyan is the brother of Muawiyah. So it's not to be mistaken with Yazid bin Muawiyah, which is the son of Muawiyah. Yes, Muawiyah had a son by the name of Yazid, and he also had a brother, an older brother by the name of Yazid, who died in that epidemic um, of that time. Okay. So now Mu'awiyah has, has, has power there. So it's not like Mu'awiyah only had power after he became Khalifa, um, after the Hakamiyyah or the Tahkeem, after the battle of, of Sifin and Nahrawan and all of that, and also 20, 10, 10 years during Imam al-Hassan's time, 10 years during Imam Hussein's time. It goes even before that. Remember what I said um, about how you might be the main authority of a land, Yes, of an empire. But those governors you have planted in different regions and corners of your empire, they will have their own power as well, and they will grow. And so this is where it all starts, brothers and sisters. The problem, the third thing, the third element, let's say, that contributes, very, very obviously contributes, to this problem of Banu Umayyah eventually being the ultimate Authority of Islam is what? Is the fact that these Bani Umayyah They they came into power In a small place of the Muslim empire Not very small but very strategic, very important Loads of wealth is there Yeah Uh, Loads of wealth are there in that area of Sham Next to the Byzantines and the Romans Okay So this is what it's looking like now The, The problem is this is that that strictness that the second khalifa had towards all of his other governors, he does not have towards Muawiyah bin Abi Sufyan. This is something that is, that is there. I want to share with you now, there is one of the Shi'i writers who has asked questions now. And I thought it would be good just to slowly read off of what he says. And these are the questions that we have as well um, regarding this matter of why is it that Muawiyah gets, is off the hook? It's as if he is invincible when it comes to these things He can't be touched Unlike all of the other ones Especially given the certain stories that we read That I want to share with you But first This uh, writer, he says And maybe this is, these are some of the things that caused him to embrace uh, Shi'ism Are these types of questions that he had This individual, he's one of the ones who uh, became Shia in his life. He, he wasn't Shia for, uh, um, all his life. But he embraced Shiaism. Uh, and it's not a Tijani, it's someone else. He says that when we look at the seerah of the second Khalifa, we notice that the mu'allafatu quloobahum, or al mu'allafatu quloobahum, excuse me, I've been saying it wrong. Al Mu'allafatu uh, قلوب is the na'im fa'al here. Um, these Mu'allafat or you can also call them the Tulaqa, the all of a sudden what happens is their stipend of Ta'leefu al is cut off and they are given the stipend of normal Muslims. He says this shows, and when does this happen? During the time of the second Khalifa. He says we look and we see the Tulaqa, the ones that the Holy Prophet had freed after the conquest of Mecca. Yes? Those Banu Sufyan and Banu Umayyah that were freed, and others as well, but, you know, the main person and the main family was who? Was Bani Sufyan, and Abu Sufyan himself, and his family, that were freed by the Holy Prophet. He said, you are freed now, you are tulata And he gave them a stipend, yes? Under the pretext of them being Mu'allafat Qulubuhum. Yes? Mu'allafat Qulubuhum, I don't want to talk about it right now, one of the um, one of the places the zakat is spent on is ta'lif al those people who are not, you know, Muslim maybe but you're doing that, you, you give them a stipend you give them some money so that they um, their hearts are softened towards you basically, okay so when you are mu'allafat qloobuhum it's obvious you're not one of the Muslims you're not seen as one of the Muslims and so this stipend is a special stipend that was given during the Prophet's time and he says even after the Prophet during the time of this first Khalifa, also this stipend was given to them. So they are not seen as you know, part of the Ummah in that sense yet. Who changes this and gives them the stipend of the Muslimin? It is the second Khalifa. Now he's saying this. Um, he has his own sources for this claim. I'm, I'm reading off of this to all of you. He says that this is from Al Isti'ab of Ibn Abd al Okay. So. These are the questions that come up, he says. He says, these are the. Qu- I have these questions. Why did the second Khalifa do this? Why did he not find anyone else better for this job to be the governor of the lands of Sham? Did he forget the history of the Bani Umayyah and Abu Sufyan in how they fought the Prophet, so staunchly, صلى الله عليه وآله. What is it that Mu'awiyah had in him that makes the second khalifa feel like he's the one for this job? Is he one of the muhajireen? Is he one of the mujahideen? Now of course some might say that he fought in a few battles after the conquest of Mecca and during the time of the first khalifa maybe. Um, but when, when here he says, min al-mujahidin, was he one of the mujahideen? He's talking about that special rank of those ones who were with the Prophet in many of his battles. Was he one of the close ones of the Holy Prophet Was he ahlul ilm? Was he like a possessor of knowledge at least? Because some of the sahaba, that's what they were known for, their knowledge. Like Ibn Mas'ud and others, Ibn Abbas and all of these people. He says, no, we can't find anything. All we find is that they were of the tulaqah, they were the ones the Prophet had freed, which is not a good thing necessarily. Alright. He says, add to all of this The fact that the second khalifa was so strict with others, so what happened here? Alright, so he says, he starts it with this story. He says, look, when the first khalifa, or the second, excuse me, the second khalifa would look at Muawiyah, he would call him Kisra al-Arab. The the Kisra al-Arab means the king of the Arabs. The Kisra was the king of the Persians. Yes, he would use that word for, for Muawiyah, and he would call him that. Why? Well, the story goes like this. That when Umar ibn al-Khattab once met Muawiyah in Sham, he went to see him. What happens is that Muawiyah comes, but comes with an entourage and all dressed up like the kings of, that, of those times. And, and uh, Umar ibn al-Khattab is like, what's going on? This is not what it's supposed to be like. And he says, look, we have spies here of our uh, rivals, of the Byzantines. And when they see how we are, they are intimidated. And this was enough for the second khalifa to be convinced. He says to him, Muawiyah tells him, Look, if you want me to stop, I'll stop. But you have to tell me. He says, Qal famurni ya Amir You tell me what to do. Should I stop or should I not? And Amir al-Mu'mineen, according to him, the second khalifa, Tells him, لا أمرك ولا أنهاك No, I'm not going to command you I'm not going to forbid you of anything Okay. This also, this one, where is this report? It's in Al-Isti'ab again According to this writer here He says, look, how is this the case though? Why? Why is the second Khalifa telling him When it comes to you, I'm not going to command you anything I'm not going to forbid you of anything But don't you know that this person is of the Tulaqah This person has fought till the very end against the Holy Prophet another story that we have is that it says that Muawiyah entered upon Omar, and he was wearing a nice green robe or thobe. and the Sahaba looked at him and so when Umar noticed this, he got up and he, he start, and he takes his little whip and he strikes Muawiyah and Muawiyah says, what's wrong, what have I done wrong and all of that and he goes, Muawiyah goes when the, when the second Khalifa returns amongst the Sahaba, they say, what, what's going on? he says, look I know that there's nothing wrong with him. I want to read the Arabic very quickly. He says, It says, Umar came and sat maybe in the spot that Muawiyah was sitting. And so they asked Umar, They said, Why did you hit that youth? While there's no one in your people, amongst your people, like him. فقال, Look, I know he's good. All I've heard of him is good. But I saw that he's a little arrogant. So it says that the second Khalifa brought his hand up like this. He said, I felt like he's a little too high, a little too arrogant. I just want to get rid of that in him. That's all that I find a problem in him. Now, here in this account, in this story, the questions that are there are three questions that this person is asking, the writer asks. He says, wait. The only problem is his arrogance, number one. That means there's no other issue. And then you are saying that everything about him is good and that all you've heard is good about him. What is going on here? And the third problem is that the Ashab said there's no one else like him. So those times, what's going on? That the second Khalifa and those around him see Muawiyah as such. Now is someone trying to say that, oh, there was like a conspiracy here and the second Khalifa wanted to you know, bring in the Bani Umayyah necessarily, that's something that is irrelevant again. We don't even want to talk about that right now. Looking at it just based on the reports and not doing too much analysis here, the one thing that is worrying is, don't you know that this person is one of the tulaqa? Why is it that he is being given such freedom and there's no problem in him? And as a matter of fact, everyone believes he's a, he's a, person, of, he's a person that is good for the ummah. Is it possible that they don't know? Here we have two more uh, reasons to believe that no. The second Khalifa knows that this person can be a problem, and maybe this is why he gives him this freedom, because if he if he gets on Muawiyah's nerves, maybe Muawiyah is going to cause problems. We don't know. And he doesn't know. And so, but he does know that Muawiyah can cause damage because number one, it says that. When the second Khalifa was appointing the third Khalifa through the six person council and he said you guys choose who's going to be next he did warn them not to have too much difference of opinion he says Iyakum al-furqa. I don't want you guys to have too much division amongst yourselves Ba'adi, after me after I die don't have division why? Fa'altum anna I want you to know that if you have too much division Muawiyah is sitting in Sham what does that mean? That means that he'll make the most of this opportunity. Wow. So we are aware of the dangers of Muawiyah, number one. Another thing that they share here, which is pretty interesting as well, is that we have a saying, all of these are either in al-isti'ab or an al-isabah, or al-bidayah and of Ibn Kathir, by the way. I'm just saying this. Um, it says that uh, the second khalifa said, min مِنْ min min Quraysh. Why are you all... Disparaging and speaking ill of one of the youth of Quraysh, meaning Muawiyah. wa la or illa There's two different ways, two different versions of this hadith, or this saying. La min Why are you speaking ill of someone who, even when he's angry, he's smiling? Or that. No one can get to where he is when it comes to the satisfaction, maybe of the Lord, or who, I don't know exactly what is meant by that. Yeah, he's always satisfied with everybody. Or the other version of it says, "That means you can't, if even if they speak ill of him, he's still satisfied with those people." No one can reach over his head to grab something. That's how great he is and honorable he is. People can only take from under his feet. In other words, this is a person that has brought izzah to Islam, as if. Alright, so this he knows how great this individual is and big he can be, yes and knows of the dangers yet the way that he's being dealt with is that uh, that, that as as if he's not going to be a problem Alright, so to wrap up this last point here it shows that some people had come and were speaking ill of Muawiyah that the second Khalifa feels he has to defend him That shows that people are telling him This is dangerous, be careful And so on Alright, so let's wrap up now Altogether, what happens is That after the first, the second Khalifas were chosen And that the Haq was not in the hands of the one who is supposed to end up in All of a sudden now we have another problem And that is that some power Limited, but at the end of the day it is power Is given to some who we know are not supposed to have power now of the Bani Umayyah and of all people, it's Muawiyah. And there are exceptions that are made for him. Whether this was a mistake, whether it was deliberate, whatever the reason is, 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 is irrelevant right now. What's for sure is that power was given. And this makes this the third element that contributes to eventually total and ultimate power, being in the hands of Bani Umayyah and falling into the hands of Yazid and eventually leading to Karbala taking place Assalamu alaikum, ya Aba Abdullah Assalamu alaikum,